Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Thriving Adoptees podcast. Have we got a treat for you today? Um, Isaac, uh, Isaac Getter is a uh, just like a brilliant guy, one of the first guests that we had on the show. Um, and we're long overdue a second second conversation, and, and here it is. So thanks for coming on today, Isaac. Absolutely. Love- happy to be back, Simon. Uh, always, uh, always a pleasure to connect with you, and, uh, and I'm always happy to share the space with you. Yeah. An absolute star. So uh, Isaac suggested a, a, a few topics, and I and the one that really grabbed my ears uh, was the healing topic. So let's let's dive straight in. Um, what does healing mean to you, Isaac? Yeah. Wow. Great question to start. Um, for me, I think healing, um, just in general, means firstly understanding what you're healing from. Um, and then I think in, in pertaining, in pertaining to adoption, um, I think healing means recognizing the, the impact adoption has had on your life without letting that be the end of the story. Um, and so for me, healing in my own journey has been a huge roller coaster. Um, I talk a lot now about being angry for a lot of my life, being angry at not being able to control my circumstances. Um, and healing for me came in two parts. Uh, it came in one, one part it came in was forgiveness. So choosing to forgive my birth parents, regardless of if I had anything from them, or even if they owed me apology, I just decided to forgive them, um, in my own way for the anger that I felt that may or may not have been their fault. So I just decided to forgive them for the relinquishment. Um, and that was my journey to saying that I'm going to let the anger about that go as best as I can. And then I think the second part of healing came from becoming a parent. And when I became a parent, I got to see parenthood and what it means to be a parent in a totally different light. I got to see struggles, pain, um, adversity in my own self. And it gave me the ability to forgive not only my birth parents, I think to another degree, but also step into a space of forgiveness with my adoptive parents for all the things that they couldn't have known to be. Um, and and that for me has been just kind of a brief bit of what healing has meant to me. Yeah. Wow. Powerful. Um, the first thing that popped into my head with the forgiveness uh, bit was, uh, I don't know who said this, something like, uh, resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die mm-hmm. yeah 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 that's a good example that's a good metaphor it it, it 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 was something probably a little bit more precise than that i can't remember where it, where it came from um Was it a spontaneous forgiveness experience? What can you back up a little bit? What? Yeah. yeah. So the first time I think I entered into that space of forgiveness was back um, in, I guess it was 2017 era. That was the first time I decided to start the forgiveness journey. And it really wasn't, it, it wasn't spontaneous, but it wasn't, planned either I think it was a progression it was a progression of finding myself I was living in Atlanta 
I was going through my own identity search. And in that, um, I decided that having a relationship with my birth mother was something that was worth it to me. And the only way that I knew to start that was by choosing to forgive any feelings that she had made me feel either intentionally or unintentionally. And so that was the first kind of step in it. I just sent her a message. I just said, hey, I, if you want to be in my life, I want to be in your life. I'm, I'm fine with this doorway being open. And that was received well. Um, and then I think the second phase of the journey was definitely unplanned. Um, I didn't plan to become a father um, when I did. Um, and I didn't expect having a child would bring up so many things for me. Um, maybe that was naive. I was also pretty young. And so, um, you know, when my son, you know, was here and I was holding him, you have a rush of emotions. You know, for me, that was the first biological family I'd been in the same room with since I was like three years old. And so we're talking about a pretty heavy intensity and a lot for you to process, a lot for you to go through. And then also, like, my story is I lived with my birth mom until I was two years old. And so for the first two years of my son's life, there was all these questions in my head about, was this how I was? You know, when you're waking up at all hours of the night to crying, you start to, you start to have those questions again of, like, was it me? Was I too much as a baby for my birth mother to handle? And there's all these, there's this swirl of things that I think goes through at least my head, maybe not all adoptees, but at least went through my head as an adoptee about um, maybe why I was relinquished, the adversity that my birth mom might've been facing. And one thing that I think happened over those couple of months was knowing the conditions that my birth mother was trying to raise me in versus the conditions that I was raising my son in, I started to see my birth mother as more of a brave person. Um, and I don't mean that to make light of relinquishment. Um, I don't um, want it to sound light of adoption because adoption is extremely painful in a lot of ways. But watching how difficult it was for me those first two years, and I had, I mean, I had everything. You know what I mean? I had I had my parents who would come over at any moment. Um, I had, you know, his mom. I had um, support. My friends, I mean, my friends threw me. A, I had one baby shower with my family and my friends threw me a baby shower. We had a stack of diapers taller than me um, through all, all the sizes. I mean, we were just decked out in resources. Um, and to know that my, you know, my birth mother was, under-resourced. And so we look at the equivalent difference, just um, whether it's economically or just socially or whatever you may call it. Um, and it was still extremely difficult for me. It was still extremely hard and challenging and uh, tiring and, and brutal in ways to be a parent to a newborn and a one-year-old um, and now a two-year-old. Um, and that's just what parenting is. I mean, Parenting is tough, especially when they're young and you're having to do everything for them. And so my perspective started to shift uh, as to what I thought maybe my birth mother was going through those first two years. And so, uh, again, this, this word bravery started to come out. 
that just even the the choice to try when you're in that position uh, to me became a, an act of bravery. And it also became something that I became thankful for, right? Because there's a lot of adoptees that don't have that. There's a lot of adoptees that can say they spent zero time with their birth mother other than coming out of them. Um, and for me, there's two years that are storing in my body somewhere. There's two years that um, I did have some kind of attachment to her. And there's two years of whether it was perfect or not, of her struggling to try and be my mother. Um, and I think I have to have some perspective in that. Um, and that to me became very healing to just say, I can respect and acknowledge the struggle you went through to try and raise me for two years. And then the struggle and the pain that it probably took for you to have to step inside that adoption agency. Um, and so for me, that was a very healing experience to just sit back with it all and just look at it for what it was. Um, and I don't have all the details. I'm sure there's things that I'm missing from that. Uh, but for me to be able to sit in that space with myself and look at my own journey with a screaming one-year-old nonstop and to say, wow, if this was what it was like for her and she was, she had nothing, I can't imagine what that would be like for me. I can't imagine the choices that I would make in that situation. Um, and for me, it was just a, it was a level of perspective that allowed me to let go of any anger, resentment, um, or pain that I was holding on to. Wow. That's incredible. It's incredible. And we've never had a, we, we never had a bloke talking about this, so Frank, I'm going to <laughs> This is, yeah. um, I, I, or, a, or a woman talking at this depth about, you know, mums have been on the show. Mums yeah. have been on the show saying that it changed them, but not with this level of, uh, this level of uh, clarity, precision, um, and depth. Um, it's, I don't know. It, it it feels like the natural question to ask, but it 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 fit. It, and, and in some ways, it feels natural, and in some ways, it feels a little bit counter because it doesn't go along with the way you're taking us. But um, you use the word thankful. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, a, a lot of adoptees get very angry about the fact, or when people tell them that they should be grateful. Right, exactly. So, what's the what's the difference? What what's the difference from internal and yeah, yeah, thankful, thank, great gratitude from within and gratitude yep. from without. Absolutely. So, I think for adoptees, gratitude from within is understanding that they couldn't control any of the circumstances that happened to them. But if they had a story that ended up somewhat successful, we can be grateful and thankful for that in our own way. Um, not every adoptee has that, though. Some adoptees are adopted into, a, into homes that they literally feel like they would have been better not being adopted at all or not being born at all. And that's a real experience. Um, but I think where the tension comes in with the words thankful and grateful are when we apply them to adoptive parents. 
Um, and because adoptees don't have a choice in being adopted or being placed into the system, the expectation of thankfulness and gratefulness is an unfair expectation that is often placed onto adoptees. And so when I say I'm thankful or I'm grateful um, for my birth mother's struggle and for my adoptive parents still learning and growing in this season of life, even though I'm in my 20s, like my mid 20s, and they're still learning and growing, and I'm thankful for them for doing that. That's entirely different from them expecting me to be grateful just because they adopted me, um, because that choice had nothing to do with me. Um, and this is something that I think is really, really important for adoptive parents to hear and adoption professionals, which is that children have no choice in this matter. Um, like if you're under really the age of 10, you're going to have relatively no choice in your adoption. Some adoption agencies do kind of do like a two-way street um, as the children get older and try to have it be a match. But especially if you're under five, you've had zero opportunity to say anything about this decision. So the expectation of gratefulness and thankfulness is extremely unfair for an adoptive parent to put on a child no matter what they did for them. Yeah. Um, and so for me and for adoptees, I think finding a way to be thankful and grateful inside of yourself for what you either gave to yourself or what you've been able to accept about your journey is entirely different from being thankful for um, being adopted. Um, my internal healing and thankfulness and gratefulness is actually much less to do with my adoptive parents or being adopted, but with a journey that I've gone on myself to find healing from the things that have hurt me. You know, like my issues with adoption have all been around abandonment and believing that I'm unlovable. And my journey to constantly pressing and constantly fighting that and constantly choosing to try and re-engage in relationships where I outgrow that I'm thankful to myself and grateful that I keep going down that road of growth and healing, but that has absolutely nothing to do with me being thankful for being adopted or my adopted parents, um, even though I am in a totally different way. Um, it's just, I think when it comes to being thankful and grateful as an adoptee, it tends to be more about the journey you go on with yourself than anybody else. Yeah. I the, the reason I struggle with that stuff is I think it's a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. a, a, American, and this is just an, a, it, it's just a, yeah. a, a suspicion, right? It, it's just a belief. Yeah. It, it may be completely wrong, but I, I've never told. I've never been told that I should be. I should feel grateful. Yeah. Uh, I and I and I and I haven't really chatted to many uh, British adoptees about this. But I just get the feeling that sometimes Americans are a little bit more forthright, in, in, in and you know, like, and they've got more of an opinion on other people. Yeah. I may be completely wrong. I may be completely yeah. wrong. Maybe the British adoptees feel exactly the same. But mm. you know, telling telling anybody how to feel, yeah, in any circumstance, is you know, at best, a complete waste of time. Absolutely, uh, and, and and at worst like you know you've got the gaslighting stuff at the other end at the other end of you know there's something you know um so it, it, it's it's just it, it, you know um like if take it as simply something as simple as um you, you know some we're having a bad day 
and and somebody tells us, you know, um, to uh, don't worry about it. Like, has, has anybody in history had been told not to worry about something? You think, yes, okay, I was, I'm not going to worry about that anymore. It's all, all's good, da-da-da-da. It's just, like, it It doesn't work. It doesn't. It really yeah. doesn't. It really it doesn't, doesn't work. work. It doesn't work. Um, logic has got no no space in this in this place. Um, and, you know, I haven't got any, me and my wife haven't got any, you know, kids, so I, I I don't know how this how it would have been if if we'd had kids like that. Um, one of the things that I I see um, in the in the swimming pool is like so I, I swim a lot today. It's crazy at the swimming pool because it's school vacation. Um, you you get parents having an, a, a, an emotional response to something. Kids, sorry, kids having an emotional response to something. They're, they're bawling their eyes out about something. And then you you see some dads saying to them, "What's wrong with you?" Hmm. They're upset. That's what's wrong with them. But <laughs> they, they, they're coming at it from a like a, 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 a there's an edge to the voice. You can you can you can hear that anger in, in their voice. They're trying to dampen that anger down, and um, and they're trying to keep a level head on and and and, and fight logic. Fight, fight emotion with logic and it just never works right yeah it doesn't and that really to me that that goes back to a lot of the work that we're trying to do at identity which is that like adoptive parents tend to um well here's a better way of saying this parenting in general is a very insecure journey and so when your kids do something that you don't agree with as a parent you tend to internalize it um, and so it becomes a reflection of you because your kids are in, in a degree of reflection of you. And so what adoptive parents tend to miss um, is that most of the time when it comes to adopted children, adoptees are acting out of a place that has 0% to do with what they do. Um, so if you're the best adoptive parent in the world and your kid is, still has behavioral issues, that probably doesn't mean anything about you. It actually just means that you need to take a deeper dive into what's actually going on inside of their head. And even at five, six, we know that adoptees have already recognized a relinquishment. If they know they're adopted, they've already had the mental connection that for them to be adopted, somebody had to leave them. And so these, these things are already happening at a young age. Um, and so when a, a, you know, when a parent gets mad and says, what's wrong with you? Uh, it's not necessarily the same as, as a biological child uh, because when a, in a six, seven-year-old adoptee hears that, they might not tell you, but what, what they're thinking already well is, mom didn't love me. And it's not the mom that's right in front of them, it's the mom that was never there. And um, that, that happens early in life and a lot of adoptive parents miss that. Um, and it leads to these kind of compound of issues. It, a child starts to suppress it more and more as a parent gets angrier and angrier about a child not changing. And all of a sudden, the real issue is hidden under so many layers that the adoptive can't, parent can't find it anymore. Yeah. So let's go back to your your, your own story and, and this unlovability thing. So where where did you where did you find that under the layers? What what was your journey to finding that under the layers? I think it was always there, man, to be honest. Um, 
I've always had a, just a big issue of believing that I'm valuable. And I think it's always why I've been so productive. I've always been a, like a mad scientist level of production. Um, no matter what I do, I have like a hyper fixation on it. And I, and I just, you know, I spin my wheels until there's no more wheels. And um, to me, that's always been a, a wonderful thing. I've loved doing it. Like I've never been somebody who, who hated that hustle. Um, but I can also recognize that that hustle didn't necessarily stem out of a healthy place. It stemmed out of me wanting people to believe that I'm valuable or lovable. It didn't come necessarily out of a place of just being that way. And that's, I mean, that's how things are formed in general. That's how our psychology gets set up. Um, but in, in the last definitely two years, more and more things have come out in my life. Um, more relationships that I've hurt cycles of me abandoning relationships so that they don't abandon me. Um, just overwhelming evidence that I live in accordance with the belief that I'm unlovable. Um, and that in, if you do, if you live in accordance with that you're unlovable, you are constantly in a state of sabotaging things that could confirm that you're lovable. Um, and so, you know, adoptees do this all the time by self-sabotaging. And um, for me, it could it could be career, it could be love, it could be relationships. Um, but if you get too comfortable in a state of believing that you're lovable, but you internally don't believe that, you do whatever you can to confirm your actual belief. That's what we do. You know what I mean? You can think of religion as the same thing. If you're a Christian, you're going to do whatever you can to confirm your belief about you know, God, Jesus, um, same comes true with our internal dialogues. And so I lived in a cycle since I can remember of making sure that every time I was about to get to a point to where people were going to love me and, and I was going to be in a secure spot, me messing up that security. And in, in 2020, um, I just, I fell into, I fell into a friend group that I think for the first time, I just didn't have any doubts about being lovable. Um, and so as that friendship grew and as the, it's a st you know still there today, um, the more and more time I spent there and the more and more I was like actually myself, like deep layers of myself, um, the more of me that was out there, the more accepted I was, um, the more I messed up but was still accepted, I just it was the first breakdown of like, oh man, maybe, you know, I am a, a lovable person. And then I had to think back to a lot of the stuff that I've done to my adoptive parents and to my siblings and family um, to try and reject them, to try and run away from them. And to also recognize their kind of dedication and loving me regardless of how I've chosen, chosen to hurt them. Um, and, and then, you know, there's also just relationship things, you know, when you have a kid with somebody, you're tied to somebody in a different way. And so also watching how I reacted to that kind of attachment with somebody um, really opened me up to like understanding that like, I have some real issues here with being attached. Like I have some real issues here with feeling close to people. Um, and so the culmination of all of those things, it just led me to just one, doing like research and reading and getting dive in, diving into it. Uh, coming, coming Home to Self by Nancy Vieira or Vieira, however you say her name, um, has been a huge help to me. Um, 
it just, it, it opened me up. It cracked me open in a sense to just say, wow, if I would let go of this belief that I'm unlovable, and I'm not saying that I have, I'm still working at it every day. Uh, but if I would let go of this and stop letting it um, be what controlled me, uh, maybe I could find something on the other side that was beautiful. Um, and so I just decided to start doing that. And I, it's again, it's not perfect because I don't think it's necessarily perfect for any of us. But sometimes I literally just remind myself, like I'll just, I'll be doing something and I'll be like, you know, I can, I can choose to believe that I'm lovable in this moment. I can choose to believe that I'm valuable. I can choose to believe that like, I'm okay. And when it comes to intimacy, that scares me when it comes to deep relationships. Um, sometimes that's what it takes. Sometimes it just takes reminding myself that like, not only is it okay for me to be me, but it's also okay for me to be loved. Um, and it's okay for me to be my authentic self and for somebody not to love it. But just because one person doesn't love it doesn't mean that it's bad altogether. Um, and so I'm not sure if that's the perfect answer, but it's, it is really a daily thing. It hits me every day. And I've been actually a lot more straightforward with people about it too. That's also been very helpful. It's been very helpful for me to approach my relationships and just be like, this is the thing. This is my thing. My thing is that I just, I have this internal belief that I'm unlovable. Um, and I don't want that to affect our relationship. And I want you to believe that I'm in this. And if I do something out of that, I want you to know that that's what it is. And it's not necessarily me um, running away from you all the time, even though it might seem like it. Um, and so really approaching any kind of relationship that I want to be meaningful um, out of that spot. And it's hard. It's kind of like weird. But I just have chosen that with people that I want to spend like deep, intimate times with uh, friendship, romantically, um, family. It's like they have to know that that's the thing that's there. Um, and if I'm living out of it accidentally, it's better for them to know that and be able to be there with me and remind me if I need to be reminded uh, than it is for me to just be hurting people unintentionally over and over and over. So you, backing up a bit, uh, there's so much there. Um, we, we use the word, this word, right, self-sabotage. And it, it it doesn't to me it doesn't sound like it was you yourself that was sabotaging this stuff. It sounds to me like it was the trauma that was sabotaging. Yeah, absolutely. And I always feel that tension in myself. Like I I always feel like I'm one person, and there's this part of me that's almost pulling me back. I felt like that for so long. Like there's so many doors that I can go through, but then there's like just like these one or two doors I can't figure out why I can't get through. Um, <laughs> and it'll be like, oh, I can do this and I can do that. And I'm I'm so good here and I'm progressing in life in this area, but I can't get through this one door. Um, and I just decided that instead of focusing on all the doors that I know how to get through, to just spend a lot of time focusing on the doors that I can't. Um, and that's not always the best advice, but for me, it was a season of like the doors that I couldn't get through were the doors that were actually the most meaningful. Um, and so I what, had to what go. What do you mean by, can you give me an example? 
yeah so i mean one of them was just like being able to be in a in a deeper relationship like being able to bring my deeper self to a relationship for people to feel like you know i'm i'm having a deeply invested relationship with them not even just romantically but also friendship wise um and so i had to spend some time knocking at that door and and figuring out like why do i feel like i i can't have a friend for more than a you know a year or two like why do i feel like i have to keep progressing through these things why is there only a certain level that i want to give myself to people um and when you knock at the door long enough and you go deep enough and you're willing to sit with the pain of it, you can just, you can find the answer that you're looking for. And my answer to that was that the longer you stay with people, the more people are committed to you, the more you have to believe that they care about you. And I didn't, I think there was a real part of me that didn't want to believe that people cared about me. So it was an unlearning then, was it? Yeah. You have to, un- you have to, I don't even think it's unlearning. It's, it's just telling yourself that that's a lie. It's just, the truth is that people want to care about you. All adoptees, somebody wants to care about you. It may not be evident before you right now, but there's a ton of people on this planet. And so whether it's friendship, family, your kids, um, somebody wants to care about you. And in my experience in, in talking with other adoptees, we have a magical way of blocking people from caring about us. Um, and I know it sits inside of me too, um, but I just I just had to say it. Like, and I still say it. I'm not even trying to do this as like a, like a we're past it kind of thing. It's like, I just still have to say it. Like with my son, there are these moments where like he, um, I'll see his relationship with his mom and I'll think, man, he probably doesn't love me. And I'll be like, why did I just think that? Like, why did I just automatically assume that because he had a relationship with somebody else, he didn't love me? And it's just these things that can somehow creep into our mind because of how we've, I think, a little bit been kind of conditioned to think about ourselves. And the the pain of relinquishment, I think, is real. I think this this notion that we have to live with from a young age that in order for us to be where we are, somebody had to not choose us, makes us believe that somehow nobody's going to choose us. And I, you know, I find it, I find it in all my moments. And, and I think the fact that I wasn't recognizing it in all my moments was actually hurting me more than recognizing it's in all my moments. So we, we don't hear, we don't hear this word belief. Mm. in the adoption community we hear the word trauma and then a little bit more trauma and then oh yeah, yeah. Of, uh, nancy Verio primal <laughs> oh a little bit more trauma um, yeah yeah then oh body keeps the score um, yep. trauma. We, we, we know we don't talk about beliefs yeah but yeah I, i've just done the so i'm doing back-to-back interviews this afternoon um uh and the one that i've just done was about beliefs and I, i'll ask you the same question why do you think the uh well first off do you agree that we don't hear this word beliefs banded around in 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 the adoption world yeah i mean we definitely don't hear it enough and i think it's because um i'll say that one of the reasons that we don't hear it enough is because the idea of recognizing the trauma of adoption is also relatively new so just um 
just in terms of like progression, um, our progression in the adoption space is still relatively um, at the front end. So we're still relatively like early in recognizing all the ways that adoption impacts somebody. And so I think the reason that we don't talk about belief enough is because we're still we're still learning a lot of the trauma. Um, I'm not saying that we haven't spent a little bit here, but um, there are still adoption agencies that would not say that there is any trauma associated with adoption. So we're still at a pretty early stage of even recognizing that there is a trauma here. And even though almost all adoptees can recognize to some degree there's a trauma here. Yeah. Um strange a strange uh, completely unrelated example pops into my head but uh, apparently it took 2000 years for the um for the belief to really catch on that the world is not flat right it took mm, 2000 yeah. years <laughs> and, and and um you know and the, the uh, and the other one um so at, like Nancy Barrow, the primal wound came out in 1993. So here we are in 2000. Yeah. It's 30 years. It's 30 years on. 30 um, years. 30 years on. I, I'm, um, I'm convinced for the reasons that we did in the last, <laughs> for the for the reasons that we talked about in the last uh, um, podcast episode, not our last one, the last episode that I released before this one. Uh, that belief is totally, totally underrated. It, the, the importance yeah. of belief is totally, is totally. Absolutely. Underrated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think? Um, what do you think beliefs are made of? Um, that's a great question. I think belief is made up. Belief. Let me say this. Belief comes, I think, from two sides. There is a belief that's just like reality, right? So like, you know, trees are wood. You know what I mean? There's there's the belief that we can understand. But I think the belief that you're really getting at is internal belief. And that is that only I think comes from being brutally honest people I think tend to like to like believe like loosely and fairy tale adjacent which is like I believe that I'm strong but without any evidence that you're strong how far does that belief and how deep does it really go and so I think belief internally only comes from really evidence. Um, and so I can tell you right here that I'm the the tallest man in the world and I can truly believe that. But Ben, I'm 5'8". And so I'm not the tallest man in the world. And as soon as I stand next to somebody that's 5'9", I'm going to learn that I'm not the tallest man in the world, even if I truly believe that in this moment. Um, so real belief and belief that you can hold on to and cling on to um, and do something with, I think comes from evidence. And I think for adoptees to believe that they're going to heal, to believe that they are going to be more than the trauma, it has to come 
from believing that that's not all they can be. And the evidence of that is actually confronting the trauma. The evidence of it is being in community with other adoptees who have learned how to manage relationships, friendships, growth, healing of their own. Um, and so for me, the reason I use belief a lot is because, I, you know, when I read Coming Home to Self, I can see on the page all the ways that I acted as a teenager. I can see all the mental things that I've thought to myself. But I can also see that that's not all I have to think. And I can see when I talk to my other friends who have gone through this journey, that they were at a point that I was at, and they were able to get to a point where they were truly going to believe something else about themselves. And even if they had to remind themselves every day, they were going to go on a path where they didn't let it control them. And so I think for adoptees, we can believe that trauma is real. And we can believe that it affects us, but we can also believe in healing. And the only way that we're going to do both of those things well is if we say, look, we know the trauma is real. We know that the pain of being placed for adoption is, is, is hard. And that realization is hurtful in a lot of ways, but it's not necessarily the end of the story. And because it hasn't been the end of the story for so many other adoptees, we can go on a journey that makes us believe that it's not the end of our journey. So I, I think the key, is, there's a lot there. I think the key one where you really uh, summed it up in seven words, right? That's <laughs> not all I need to think. Yeah, that's not all I need to think. Yeah. It can be true, and it can also not be the end of the story. So, I mean, my take on, but if somebody asked me what beliefs are made of, I would say they're made of thought. Yeah, made of and, thought. Well, they're made of thought. And, and like the... Like, the, the, we're going back to flat... We, 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 we're going back to flat earth. Right. Uh, like flat earth stuff and, and uh, you know, earth-centered universe here, right? Because, uh, uh, you know, in the self-improvement world, um, mm -hmm. the uh, self-development world, which I spent a lot of time in before I came into the adoption space, um, you know, you've got these things called self-limiting beliefs. And they are, you know, especially in, like, in, in entrepreneurial circles, you know, your self-limiting beliefs hold, hold the entrepreneur back. Right. Yeah. So self self limiting beliefs they're the enemy. Right. So we've got to zap these. Yeah. We've got to, We've got to, We've got to bust these beliefs. Right. But the it, but also in this in this world, um, we've and and, and its brother that or, or brother or the sister of the self self limiting beliefs is this thing mindset. Well, yeah. I don't want mindset. <laughs> a mindset is like a a concrete. It's it's like concrete poured over steel to create a you know like a reinforced steel building for the for the foundations. And if I've got my if my mind is set, I'm I'm not gonna I, I'm gonna cling I'm gonna cling on to my beliefs. And you can question me. You can give me as much evidence as, as you've got, and I'm not gonna change it. But we yeah. use this word mindset, right? And I, I, 
I mentioned it. I put it in a proposal to somebody um, recently. Yeah. And I put, um, I said, I had something about mindset. And and, yeah. um, and then and then I said, wouldn't it better? Wouldn't it be better if we had mind fluid? Wouldn't wouldn't you prefer to be mind fluid? And and, and the, the comment came back. I'm not sure what mind fluid is. Right. Well, it's the opposite of mindset. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. But uh, mindset, like mindset, self-limiting beliefs. It's like a whole kind of structure of stuff. You know, like it's, but it's not truth, right? We're not, we're not born believing anything. Yeah. Born with beliefs. They're kind of, we, we pick them up along the way. Yeah. We pick them along the way, but they're not us, right? Hmm. they're, They're not us. So how can anything that has been added to us be us? It just can't be that way i think that's a good point is that anything added to us can't be us i think it's a it's a it's a twofold thing um because in in one way we're not necessarily born believing anything about ourselves but relinquishment does have an effect early on in the in the neurology of somebody and so we can even see this like an in infant adoption, um, like studies that have been done about, you know, like when an infant is separated from their birth mom immediately, the effect that that actually has on an infant. And so I think it's like it's it's taking this twofold approach to what you said, which is that how do we not be set in our mindset that we're damaged, broken, trauma, all that? Like, how do we not be stuck there? Um, and I think what I what I see as maybe one of the most best ways to to explain this is like having a growth mindset having a mindset that is not stagnant in one area and so it doesn't have to be a mindset it can be a mind fluid but being being in a position as adoptees and understand that because of something that we had no control over we're always going to have some kind of um interesting feeling around attachment. Um, and that tends to be where it, where it lies, not for every adoptee probably, but attachment seems to be where um, a majority of adoptees tend to feel the burn of adoption. And so I think we can recognize that attachment is always going to be a challenge. And our mindset or our mind fluid has to always be, how can I constantly in every season grow to make sure that this one instance that happened in my life does not be the determining factor for every other instance that happens in my life. And that is so much more hard than I just said it. Like I said it in such a simple way, was like, how do I not let this one instant affect all my other instances? But when that one instant happens, when you're a baby or you're a toddler or you're, you know, five, it tends to have a residual impact going up. And so it's much harder than I described it as. But I do think that that's that's the thing that I think all adoptees are trying to figure out. But the thing that I think we should probably spend more time talking about in general, which is that it was one instance. It was one instance that hurt like hell. And we have to figure out as adult adoptees how to recognize the pain and the deep pain of that first break 
without letting it be the definition of all the relationships to follow. Because we see it all the time across adoptee content. We see it in writing, in the books, the constant struggles with marriage, relationships, divorce, relationships with children, relationships with friends. It's a residual theme. And it's because I think internally, we let one relationship define all our relationships. And so what I... Sorry, we just had a little glitch there, listeners. Um, do you remember where you were, Isaac? Yeah, it's just like this belief that not one relationship has to define the rest of them. And I think that's just a hard, it's hard to move away from. It's been extremely hard for me to move away from, actually. Um, because for some reason, every woman that I meet has to carry the same weight of my birth mother. And I, and I don't know why I can't not let that happen, but it's just, it's my journey. Every time somebody wants to love me, especially if they're a woman, for some reason, they always are going to abandon me. Um, you can take my adoptive mom, you can take my girlfriends, you can take any deep relationship I've had with a woman and, and apply it under that context. But the only thing that's going to change that is me choosing to believe that that one relationship does not define the rest of my relationships. And that's a belief. That's a belief that I have to truly believe. And the only way that I think I'm going to truly believe it is that every time I'm tempted to treat the relationship I'm in now as if it's going to end the same way that it did with my birth mom, I choose to not do the things that I would typically do. I choose to not sabotage. I choose to engage in a conversation. I choose to be it, have it be one of the things up front. It's extremely unfortunate to start a relationship with, just so you know, I have issues with believing I'm lovable. But I think for adoptees, it's something that could actually be very, very valuable if they really care about having a relationship. And I'm not saying that that's your thing. That's my thing. That's what I need to start relationships with. But I think it does help when we care about people as adoptees to say, look, I had this thing that happened. And it has had a residual impact on my ability to see myself as valuable and loved. And if I care about you, I want you to know this now so that I can be in these moments with you as my full self. And our full self is what a lot of adoptees are afraid of. And I'm afraid of it too. And I think we have to, we have to be willing to step into a space where we believe and we truly believe and we get the evidence to support that not every relationship is defined by that first one. What do you mean by we're afraid to be our full self? I think that I think that part of being our full selves is truly accepting that we were um, whatever you want to call it, relinquished, abandoned, whatever. Whatever you may be, whatever it may be in your head, um, sometimes it's taken. Um it starts, it's again, brutal honesty is the path out. And whether you were an international adoptee that was kidnapped and sold to America, whether you were somebody who the foster care system took from your parents and took away their rights, even though they wanted them, whether you were in my situation where poverty drove your mother to place you, uh, or whether you're birth mom didn't want to raise you in the first place and she just relinquished you at birth 
you have to start there and decide that that moment is not the defining moment. It's a part of the story. It might be the origin story, but the origin story does not have to be the ending. And I think to see ourselves fully, we have to sit in that pain, in that truth, um, in that hurt, because that hurt has driven us to do a ton of other things that have hurt people around us because we didn't want to be the only ones hurting. Um, and I know that. I know that about me. I know that that I've hurt people just because I didn't want to be the only one hurting. And I think until we get to a spot where we're willing to see our story, look at it plainly, look at it for what it is, be hurt by it and choose to heal from it, we're going to keep walking in cycles. And cycles, cycles can hurt us forever. Um, and I don't, I know for me, I don't want to keep living in cycles. I'm not saying I'm out of all the cycles yet, but I'm just saying that I know that I don't want to live in them forever. Um, and so for me, I sit in a place where I can say, look, my birth mom tried to raise me for two years and whether she couldn't do it or I was too difficult, um, or she just didn't want to raise me anymore. That's how this shit started. And that's what it is. That's where I was. That's what led me to being placed into the system. And that is painful. That hurts me. It leaves me in a place of feeling frustrated and unlovable. But that's the truth of where it started. And just because that happened doesn't have to mean that the rest of the people that care about me are going to do that to me. And now when I step into things, um, even though there's always this little piece of me that believes that everybody's going to leave, whenever that piece starts flaring up, I decide that, that I'm just not going to live in it. Um, and yeah, it's not perfect. It's just not. It, I, I don't want to sound too simple or too glorified or too beautiful because it's really not. But it's just... I have to always recognize when I'm doing something out of that trauma and pain instead of out of a belief that I'm lovable. And I can always see it nowadays. Now that I really choose to recognize it, I can see it. I can see when I'm choosing to do those things and probably not all of them, but at least I can reflect back and see them now. Um, and it takes some work to get there, but you have to do it. Um, I think you have to as an adoptee, if you wanna get to a place where you're actually whole and healthy in your relationships, you have to constantly sit in a place where it's like, you know what? The reason that I lashed out that way was because when they did that, it reminded me that they were going to leave me. And so instead of confronting the fact that I felt hurt by what they did, I lashed out because I wanted to make sure that they hurt before I hurt. Wow. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> Talking on behalf of a lot of people here. Yeah. 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 Thank you. It's, it's been hard. So, um, listeners, as always, check out the show notes. Check out what Isaac's um, doing. And um, it's, it's great work. Thank you. Thanks, Emma. Same to you, man. We'll speak to you again very soon, listeners.
Genau. 